0: That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 24. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I have a friend who um, sometimes has a difficult time uh, sleeping, and uh, he heard I was preaching today, so he thought that might be very helpful. So I hope you got your blanket and pillow ready there, Peter. You can uh, get cosy now. I'm about to put you to sleep though. Not quite. Hopefully we'll be doing well. You'll stick with me and uh, we'll find some encouragement from this passage today on this Resurrection Sunday. So let us um, bow in a word of prayer and come to terms with God's word. Let us pray. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, Thank you for your word which reminds us about the deep truths of what you've done for us in Christ. And we pray today that you'd help us to understand increasingly the importance about the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, to think about the lengths that some people go to to try to secure a better future ...for themselves and the people that they think are important to them. A few years ago now, uh, there was a leader in Israel in the 1990s called Yitzhak Rabin. He governed Israel. Uh, this going back a while. It's in the, in the 1990s, so I, I, was, I was there for that. There's some people that weren't. Um, but Yitzhak Rabin had a long history of serving in the military... ...and he rose through the ranks even to become a general... After a while, he became a statesman in Israel, and eventually he served as the Prime Minister. In 1994, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for embarking on terms of peace with the Palestinians in in terms of trading land for peace. But there was an Israeli law student. He wasn't really studying to become a solicitor. He was a, a student of the Torah, And his name was Yigal Amir. I don't know if I've pronounced that right, but none of you will know anyway. So it doesn't really matter. But Yigal Amir didn't like Rabin's approach to the terms of peace that involved giving up land. And this is where I quote now from that important source called Wikipedia. On the 4th of November 1995, after a demonstration in support of the Oslo Accords, which was bound up with terms of peace swapped for land, Amir waited for Rabin in a parking lot adjacent to the square, close to Rabin's official limousine. There he shot Rabin twice with a semi-automatic pistol and injured Yuram Rabin, the security guard, with his third shot. And so this guy has killed the President. And what's more, when he heard and found out that Rabin was dead, he told the police that he was satisfied because he was acting on orders of God. And at his trial, he said he didn't care if the outcome was paralysis for Yitzhak Rabin or death, as long as Rabin was out of the way. And he didn't express any regrets for his actions. Yigal Amir was trying to establish a better future for himself and for the people of Israel, one that involved trying to preserve land and he went to great lengths to do it. He believed that he was doing God's will and what was best for the Jewish people, and he didn't have any regrets. It's an interesting story because even though uh, hundreds of years elapsed between uh, the time of Paul and the time of Yigal Amir, there are actually some common threads in their lives. One of them was the fact that they were both Jews and zealous for God. They were also zealous for the Jewish people. This is how Paul described himself. You've heard about my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So we can see there's a bit of an overlap in their zeal. Paul speaks about him as, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Which we take is, he's not saying he's perfect, but he's either legalistically righteous or he's He's carrying out faithfulness to the covenant. Well, we start to see some of the overlap with their violence in Acts chapter 7 because the believer, sadly, Stephen, is stoned by the Jews and Saul's there giving his approval. Now, we can't trace back to the Apostle Paul or Saul, as he was formerly known, as killing anyone in particular. But this is what we're told about him. It's not not great news Chapter 8 verse 3 says but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so as we compare Yigal Amir and Paul of Tarsus even though they're separated by hundreds of years we can see they're both attempting to be zealous for God. They're both keen for a better future to look after who they thought were the true people of God. Now, at this point in the story, it's worth remembering that Paul didn't see life always this way, did he? Uh, As we read the Bible, we can read his call for people to love God, love the Lord Jesus, to love the church and love the outsider. But at this pre-Christian stage of his life, he didn't really appreciate Jesus, did he? In his pre-Christian life, even from Paul himself, it's clear that he doesn't care about Jesus or the followers of Jesus. And so, what was Paul's problem? Why did he go to these extreme lengths to stop the spread of Christianity? What was was the big threat to him? Well, to start with, some of the Jewish leaders, and and probably Paul among them, didn't like some of the things that the Christians were saying. We get a hint of this uh, when we hear the end of Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. Stephen says to the Jewish leaders, the Jewish council... Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? He's thinking the answer is no, they persecuted them all. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You've received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen pointed out that the religious leaders were doing a bad job and they've they've missed the boat, so to speak. Leadership in Israel had a history of disobeying God and a nasty habit of killing or knocking off the very people that were calling them to turn back to God in faith. And Stephen's pointing out that the current generation of leaders stand in that same disobedient tradition. They're no different. In fact, their error is bigger because they've betrayed and murdered the righteous one. And he's referring to Jesus at that point. Well, that kind of indictment on the leadership and those who were sticking fast to the law didn't go down very well. Those Jewish leaders didn't exactly see things the way Stephen's putting them. They had a different idea about who the righteous one would be and what the coming kingdom of God might involve. And Paul thought quite differently to Stephen as well. As a Pharisee, he was obsessed with the law. And he was zealous for it, but he missed who the law was pointing to. He missed the way that God was planning to bring in his kingdom. And so in Romans chapter 10, Paul sheds some light on what his problem or what the other Jews' problem is. In Romans chapter 10, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. They didn't know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. That was Paul's problem and that was their problem. Well, how did they seek to establish their own righteousness? Well, firstly, they missed Jesus as the key to God's plans for the world. Instead, they were focused on being a Jew and having the law. So, some of them were very fastidious about trying to keep the law and perhaps hoped that if they were better at it as a nation, that might be the way the kingdom of God might come in, the time that the prophets spoke about when God would bring the judgment day that's spoken about in Daniel chapter 7, the day when the kingdom of God would arrive and God's people would enjoy life without enemies like the Romans reigning over them. They thought if we could just get our act together as a nation and perhaps be better at sticking closer to the law, then God's kingdom might come. And at one level, it's understandable that they failed to see Jesus as God's promised king, the one who would bring in the kingdom of God. They were familiar with passages like Psalm chapter 2, which spoke about God's king who would come and reign. But Jesus didn't seem to fit the mould, did he? Someone who would be like a military king ruler, who would uh, punt out the Romans and vindicate the people of God, having suffered at the hands of other people. And furthermore, Jesus was critical of their approach to the law. He was critical of their legalistic approach and their attempt to establish their own righteousness. And so, what did they think of Jesus? Well, in his earlier days, Paul didn't think of Jesus as God's promised king. And instead, he thought those who were following Jesus were those who were going down the wrong track, and even leading the other Jews astray, away from the important elements that he thought of Judaism, which were critical. Things like circumcision, obeying some food laws, having the Jewish Sabbath and the temple worship, and distancing themselves from the Gentiles. And above all, Paul thought that they had the wrong Messiah, because Jesus was now dead. Well, that's what Paul thought. I wonder if he thought that the Christians were even getting in the way of God's kingdom coming. To quote from Paul once again in Romans 10 verse 3, they did not know the righteousness that comes from God. They didn't understand God's plans and they sought to establish their own righteousness. That was their problem. And so for a while there, the Apostle Paul was a bit more like that Jewish man I spoke about earlier, Yigal Amir. Paul acted violently on his beliefs about the direction the Christians were going. He thought they were going the wrong way, that they needed to change back, and if they wouldn't, they would face some consequences. But then something marvellous happened. Isn't that a relief? On this Resurrection Sunday, we finally come to some good news... Something marvellous happened and Paul's life was transformed. In Acts chapter 9, we read that as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Pick this story up in verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. and once he began to preach in their synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus proving that jesus is the christ and so a, lo- a light came on for paul so to speak well that's a little bit dry isn't it we need to hem this up just a little bit more this is quite a good moment in the story friends here we go brothers and sisters he saw the light hallelujah hallelujah amen <laughs> that's more like it good now yeah, we're, we're getting the tone of it. This is a good part of the story. He came to know the living Lord Jesus. Isn't that marvellous? His life has been transformed. He realised that he was wrong about Jesus and the Christians. He realised that Jesus was in fact the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. And that's the idea of God's promised King. He realised that Jesus isn't dead in the ground, rotting, that he's actually the Son of God, the Messiah, the the coming King who would reign forever. He realises that this is the new age of the resurrection that's broken in on the presence and his life has been changed forever. And I know that some of you have had your life changed by this risen Lord Jesus as well. Well, how is this resurrection central to Paul? Well, that brings us to the passage that was read earlier for us today, that Jacob read for us. The short answer is that the resurrection is very central to Paul's life and his message. And it should be central for us as well. We saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Paul acknowledged that Jesus not only died for sins according to the Scriptures that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures and appeared to all kinds of people. And although the resurrection was central in Paul's message about salvation, what he encounters with the Corinthian church was that for some people it didn't feature as very important at all. In verse 12 he notes that some suggest there is no resurrection of the dead. People were suggesting that back then and there are some people today, even church leaders like I think former Bishop John Shelby Spong and people like Barbara Thiering, they denied the resurrection of Jesus and so that he only rose in people's hearts. Well, people back then denied the resurrection as well. But in these important verses, Paul reminds us that if Jesus hasn't risen, then life is hopeless. A number of important points are made. Firstly, he he takes it for granted that the, the dead will be raised. That's the first point. In verse 16 he says, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And the conclusion about Jesus not being raised is important. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus hasn't been raised, our faith is is futile, it's pointless and we're still in our sins. It's an important point, isn't it? He's saying that if Jesus was just a dead Messiah, then he hasn't been vindicated by God. He hasn't been the one who has paid for all sins for all time, in the past, present and the future. In short, if Jesus hasn't risen, life's hopeless and we remain unforgiven by God. He really underscores this message in verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are to be pitied more than all men. Now, Paul's probably reflecting on some of the teaching in the Old Testament that talks about the Resurrection Age. And one of the a couple of verses he might have in mind is in Daniel chapter 12 that speaks about a time at the end when the dead will be raised. In Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, we read, At that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, this is the idea that they're sleeping in the graves, will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the idea that there will be a bodily resurrection. And Jesus talks about, sorry, rather, Paul talks about Jesus as being the first fruits of that age. This is an image from the world of agriculture. Uh, I'm not very good at growing things at my place, but we, we do enjoy it when there is, uh, you know, corn in the backyard and you suddenly you start to see the, the things sprout. And then at some point, you know, you, you know one's going to be ripe and you can take it and, and it's kind of like the taste of a harvest that's going to come. And that's the language that Paul's using to describe the work of Jesus. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now, this is just nice language talking about people who've died. He's saying we don't need to worry about them because they're going to be raised as well. Jesus is like the first first piece of corn that we take. He's he's the harvest and there's going to be more corn to come. You'll have to forgive me for that corn illustration I made up on the spot. (laughs) Jesus has brought in the new age of the resurrection... This is different to the dawning of the new age of Aquarius. Um, And that show called Hair that I don't really have a lot in common with. (laughs) Jesus is risen and is seated at God's right hand. The resurrection of the dead comes through Jesus. Death came through Adam, but the resurrection comes through Jesus. And in verse 22 to 24, we learn that Jesus brings life to people both now and in the future. There's a sequence. In verse 23, you can read that with me. Christ, the first fruits. Jesus is the first of the resurrection age. And then when he comes, those who belong with him. This idea of when Jesus comes is the idea of his, his second coming. Now, there's more that can be said about the end times, and I won't be saying it too much about that now but this word for when he comes is the word called parousia or parousia and it was a word that was used to refer to the grand opening of an emperor or other high dignitary when they appeared that's the word that they were using and what we're hearing now is that when Jesus comes uh, since he was raised he will raise others with him He'll raise those who have faith in Him. In verse twenty-four, we read, "Then the end will come," and that centers on the reign of Christ over all authorities. And so, these verses—they're a bit cosmic, really, aren't they? As we think about this, these ideas about the life to come and a resurrection age, they give us a picture of life at the end for God's people. And in many respects, we're at the the limits of the English language to talk about these things. And Paul anticipates that it's hard to explain what things will exactly be like. In verse 51, he says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. It's deep stuff, isn't it, really? Deep waters, that's right. Thank you, David. So life will be different for God's people when they are raised with Christ. And from this passage, we can see from Paul that the, the resurrection is very central to his life. And it's very central to his message. So what is the significance of the resurrection for people like you and I? Well, these things apply not only to Paul and to the church of his time, they apply to us too, don't they? If we're those who have a living faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, then the promises of a re- resurrection life apply to us. And so as we uh, get nearer to facing our deaths, we don't face death without hope even in the sorrow of death we're given hope of a resurrection life in god's kingdom it doesn't mean that death's a wonderful thing it just means that there's there's hope beyond the grave and furthermore the resurrection of jesus is important with the life that we have with god because of the holy spirit that's given to us Uh, the apostle peter draws the link between the fact that Jesus has been raised and the Spirit is now poured out on those who have faith in Christ. This message comes to us from Acts chapter 2, at the time of Pentecost, after Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they are speaking in other languages. And people who are visiting there can hear them speaking in their own native tongue. Peter explains this situation, as saying it's because the Spirit's now been poured out by Jesus who's risen. This is what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 32 and 33. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And so now that Jesus has risen, he's poured out the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches us about this in Ephesians chapter 1. Those who've believed the gospel message, those who've got a living trust in Jesus, are those who are given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance in God's kingdom. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Having believed... You are marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. We're familiar with the idea of a deposit in the world of commerce. If you want to go and buy a car off the car lot to make sure you get that car and you secure it before somebody else swoops in ahead of you, uh, you pay a deposit, and that's a way of saying. I'll give you the other 90% a little later. Well, we're described as God's possession. And the deposit is the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's given to us as a, as, a, as a taste, if you like, of the inheritance to come. And so the resurrection of Jesus is important for us too, isn't it? It's important because Jesus, having been the one who's risen, he's the one who pours out the Holy Spirit and gives us life with God. The resurrection is important because it gives us joy in the face of the future. As we think about the future, we know that Jesus' sacrifice has been sufficient. It's been accepted by God that he's been vindicated according to Romans chapter 1. And people like the Jews and the Apostle Paul at one time didn't really understand that that was God's way of acting faithfully to his his people and to the world. That was God's faithfulness and his righteousness to his way of saving the world. Instead, they sought to establish their own righteousness, (coughs) but we're in a different place, aren't we? We've read about God's Word, (coughs) which teaches us about what Jesus has done. In Romans chapter 3, we're reminded that the sacrificial death of Jesus is is God's way to show his faithfulness and his righteousness and to save people. Paul explains God's decision to do this in chapter 3, verse 26. He says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. When it says it was to show his righteousness, Paul's saying this is, this is the word referring to God. It's, it was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. There's no point in being like the Jews, trying to seek to establish our own righteousness because God's demonstrated his own righteousness by bearing sin in in and through Jesus for us, and by being the one who justifies us if we've got faith in Jesus. It took Paul to meet the risen Lord on that road to Damascus for the penny to drop. It took that moment to encounter the risen Lord for Paul to realise uh, what grace God gave to him in Christ, and it transformed his life. He learned that Jesus hadn't remained dead. Instead, he was the first fruits. Of this resurrection age, and that those who trust in Jesus receive God's holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing their eternal life with God in that new age. Well, may we be the ones who realize what we have in the resurrected Christ as well? May we be those who are steadfast with our hope in this resurrected Jesus? and also continue with some joy in our lives as we look forward to the time when we'll be raised with him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we do give you thanks for your goodness to us in Christ. We give you thanks that he bore the sin of the world, that he bore our sins, that we might enjoy your gift of forgiveness. We give you thanks that Jesus was risen from the dead and that he pours out your spirit within our hearts and changes us to be among those who have a living faith in him. And Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to stand steadfast with our faith in Jesus until he comes and we are raised with him. We give you thanks for this encouraging message that we have today and the joy that we have as we live life now with, with hope in the future because of your goodness to us in Christ. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.